debated last week whether to continue reviewing our principles for the class, but I, I'm going to continue that. They're under class description on page one of the handout. Um, again, our hope as we review the fundamentals of the faith in view of evangelism, um, that we would begin by focusing on Scripture, what Scripture says as principles rather than proof texts. Again, the idea is not to equip you with that one single verse that would allow you to win some, some spiritual debate in the future, um, but rather root yourself in, in the Bible's principles. Um, we will also discuss and present how people of different religious traditions and, and experiences and backgrounds might respond to the fundamentals of faith as we see in our, our Bible study. Um, it is a good idea. It's, it's served me well, certainly in my experience, uh, working daily in a, in a religious institution that is not our own, uh, to assume that believers in other religious groups are knowledgeable and sincere. I think if you start with that assumption, um, that kind of good faith argument or discussion, I should say, is much more healthy and productive. Uh, the flip side of that is that it, if you do assume a bad motives or assign bad motives to folks, it almost always leads to pain and alienation. <clears throat> However, given that, that we want to assume knowledge and sincerity, we don't want to assume bad, bad <clears throat> motives, even given that, folks can still not know and act on the truth. I mean, a blunt way to say it is people can still be wrong. And sincerity does not substitute for the truth. And so that's the reason why we would engage in these discussions, why we would evangelize, right? Because we want people to know and live the truth. But finally, one, one thing, one reminder that's always in my head, again, as I engage with people of, of different uh, experiences, um, is to seek to understand rather than persuade first. You know, that's... That's the first step is understanding. Now, of course, ultimately that conversation has to move to a change of mind, a change of heart. And in fact, today we're going to talk about that a little bit. So that's the class description we've been reviewing each week. Uh, you'll excuse me, the date there is wrong on part three. It should say March 12th. Excuse that typo. This is the correct handout, uh, I think. Yes. Um, <laughs> I just forgot to update the date there. All right. To review what's led us to this point over the previous four weeks, the previous lessons in the class, we've looked at the following. In the first week, we uh, established that God chooses or elects a community, and the community he now chooses are those in Christ. You might be more familiar with the word fellowship instead of community. The Bible is translated as both. Um, folks who don't have a, a church background, so to speak, who haven't, who haven't been to... Um, part of religious communities. The word fellowship may not ring true to them. It, it may not, it may not uh, be familiar to them. The second week we focused on, on how the, God, the community God chooses is united in the Holy Spirit. We spent this time describing several works of the Holy Spirit in individuals and the church. Um, and then the third uh, last week and even a little bit the week before that, um, we looked at the church being defined as the community of the saved because of Jesus' mission. The church gets our identity from Jesus' purpose. So, say it the other way. Jesus' purpose gives us our identity because we now seek to be in Him and like Him. We have that same purpose, which is to seek and save the lost. That reality prompts a question, right? Why do people need to be saved? 
as we, we spent some time talking about the realities of the human condition, sin, punishment, and so forth. And then last week, we talked about what God does in response to that reality. We called it God's action in salvation and church membership, trying to answer the question, of course, how do I get saved? How do I become saved? You may remember we spent time talking about the five biblical New Testament descriptions of the atonement um, or the significance of the death of Jesus. So that's how we got to this point. hope that refreshes you, kind of see my logic, and of course, really, the logic of Dr. Everett Ferguson, uh, who, upon whose book I'm basing this study. Alright, we'll take a moment for you to turn to page two, which coincidentally is the beginning of our lesson. The natural movement, then, as we talk about God's action in salvation and church membership, is now to talk about the human response to God's action. And so... The, um, the initial response, again, I'm careful to get caught up in a timeline here when I use the word initial. Um, I'll just say um, the response that we're going to talk about today, the, the fundamental response, is faith. Faith as the human response to God's action. So I'm looking there at A, B, and C. Um, you can see that if you want to use a word to... Uh, Describe the basic human response. That's the word I use rather than initial, but basic. You can sum it up with the word faith. Um, God, now this is what's interesting to me that, that Dr. Ferguson describes. He, wants, he spends a lot of time, and we're not going to, but he spends a lot of time um, establishing the fact that God gives this faith. But he wants to make clear in, number, in letter C that that doesn't mean God gives the faith to some and withholds it from others. That is not the case. That's a false teaching. That's not true. But he wants to make it clear that, that God is the source of the faith. So he says God gives the content of the faith. That is Jesus himself. Like what Jesus is, what he promises, or what God promises through Christ, um, what Jesus does for us. All of that is the content of what we believe or the faith. And then also God gives the, the means of the faith. That is, how do we receive it? And, and the, the primary way we receive faith is through God's word, the message, right? So if God is both the content and the message, that's what we mean when we say God gives faith. Now, we don't mean that God withholds it from some folks or sprinkles it on some folks or dispenses it to some folks. Um, what we mean instead is that God is the supplier. And that whole, the, the importance of that reality goes back to what we said last week with all five descriptions of the atonement, and it is that God is doing the work. And when we know that, there's a relief, right? We don't have to earn it. We just receive it. I shouldn't say just. There's a lot that goes into receiving it. All right, I kind of got lost there a little bit. If there's anything you felt like in, in Roman numeral one um, about the, the definition or the basic understanding of faith, you want to add real quick, we can. Well, let's see what the scripture says then. Um, <clears throat> Romans 4, 17 through 25, if you want to turn there. Um, I copied and pasted it um, there, but I took out the verse numbers. I do that because it lets me get a sense of the passage as a whole sometimes. So um, that's why I do it. So Romans 4, Paul writes about faith. <clears throat> as it is written... I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. 
against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So it probably wouldn't survive or sorry, surprise this group of, of uh, experienced biblical readers in this room to know that if we're going to talk about a definition of faith, an understanding of faith, we're going to talk about Abraham, right? Like he is um, literally the father of our faith, right? Um, that promise that God gave him, um, way back in Genesis, we are the fulfillment of it, which is a beautiful thought. So, thinking about evangelism, thinking about the fundamentals, I thought, what? how could I uh, uh, explicate this passage to give some clarity as you think about your own faith, but as the focus of the class, think about discussing faith, that basic human response to God's action, with your friends, your neighbors, who may be believers or may not. And the first thing I did was I made a table, which you may remember I love to do. You'll be proud I deleted that table. It wasn't working, man. It was just, it was just one chart. It was just I, I couldn't make it work, so I deleted that chart. That joke delights me. Denise Goff isn't here to laugh at it. So, um, it's okay. Heather grinned big. It's all good. If you don't get that joke, it's fine. Uh, you don't need it. I like to make charts. I made one and I deleted it. Instead, I set it up as like an imaginary uh, dialogue. Question and answer. If you showed this passage to your neighbor, or you discussed it, or you looked at it before you were talking with your friend, or your cousin, or your uncle, or your co-worker, um, what are the kinds of questions they might ask? And so that's, that's what I did here. So the first question you might have as you read this passage is, what is faith? I keep seeing that come up. And verses 19 through 21 make it clear that faith is trust in the promises of God. And you can see that when, it's, when, the, when Paul writes, Abraham was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. It's clear to me from that verse that faith is trust in the promise of God. Um, and I see some possibilities there to talk to your neighbor about what it means to keep promises, right? Um, you've heard the phrase maybe break faith. Um, we use the, the phrase being unfaithful. Um, so that's a, a good place to start. Continuing there, and I, I created spaces between the questions that I felt like were related. So it's logical to ask, what was the benefit of Abraham having faith in God? And verses 23 and 24 Make it clear that that means that Abraham was declared righteous. And in parentheses, I put what it means to be righteous. It means to be approved by God. If you were real clever, you could go back to our lesson last week and see what justified and righteous mean. Remember their law, law terms. Another question that then is parallel to that is, what is the benefit of a Christian 
having faith in God. And of course, it is the same. We are declared righteous. Um, and the, the scripture makes that plain too. Next question is logical. Why would Abraham trust in the promises of God? Why, what prompted Abraham's faith? Verse 17, I think, makes that clear. The nature of the God who made the promise. And, and then here is a description of that nature. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into, beings, thing, into being things that were not. So this is something I think about a lot because uh, a lot of folks public, in public life have a misunderstanding that I have faith because I'm scared I'll go to hell if I don't. Now, the reality of hell has an impact on me. I'm not going to deny that, okay? But it is much more accurate to say that I, the root of my belief is a trust in who God is, not that I'm going to get burned forever. <coughs> Amen. And so this verse illustrates that reality. Abraham trusts God because of who God is, demonstrated over and over and over again. Okay, um, And so then the parallel to that question, of course, is why would a Christian trust in the promise of God? What, what motivates us as believers? What would impact someone who's thinking about becoming a Christian? Verse 24 offers the same thing. The nature of the God who made the promise. God is the, the being who can raise Jesus from the dead. So, trying to make a parallel between Abraham's faith, why he trusted God, and then why we would trust God. I'll pause there. It's a lot to chew on. We've got one more set of questions and answers on the next page. Alright, let's look at that. Page 3. Our pace today is, is a hustle here. Um, and then it's very important to ask, what promise did Abraham trust, specifically? And of course, verse 18, Paul reminds us the promise to Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations. And <laughs> as someone who's, you know, confronting his aging, you know, every time I look in the mirror these days, um, <laughs> the phrase, he was as good as dead, makes me laugh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, um, I don't think Paul was trying to be funny. Um, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. But um, goodness, he's just very frank about what it means to grow old, right? He was very frank about Abraham's uh, condition when he was promised that he would be the father of many nations. Um, but Abraham trusted that promise. And what's really interesting to me is the phrase, he did not waver. <coughs> because, as you'll see in the second part of the lesson, you all know this. We spend a lot of time talking about the wrestle with wrestling with faith, struggling with faith. You know that our faith like life can feel like hills and valleys, and that's totally normal and appropriate. But it strikes me that Abraham did not waver. Paul says um, in, in his acceptance of that promise. And then, of course, the logical question: What promises do Christians trust? And verse twenty-five answers that. Our sins will be forgiven because Jesus died, and we will be justified because Jesus was raised from the dead. That is our promise. That's why we're here this morning. That's our bedrock uh, that we live our lives upon. And then, of course, in parentheses, I referenced what justified means from last week. Okay. Um, 
And again, as you look over the questions and answers based on the Romans 4 passage, the basics of faith, um, anything you would add? Any question you would ask? Or any answer you might offer that I did not based on that passage? Yes, David. Uh, you probably said this, but I don't care well. Uh, the word, I, I forget what word you've been using, but I mean, some translation, he credited to him for righteousness. Means he was not righteous. Abraham was not righteous, but God looked at his faith and he said, "Okay, I'm going to count that or credit that as righteousness," which is extremely encouraging to me because I'm not righteous. I don't do all that God wants me to do, but God looks at my faith and he he, he says, "Okay, that's a righteous guy." Because of his faith. Thank you, David. And I, I did not say that, so thank you. Okay. Excellent. God looks at the as at us as though we have never sinned through the power of Jesus' blood. Uh, if we are uh, baptized believers, we're going to get into that. We're going to expand our definition of faith here in a moment. Make sure we're all on the same page with. Other thoughts on Romans 4, those questions and answers about Abraham's faith and the parallels to Christian faith. Okay, I put it in a box to try to signify importance there at the top of page 3. There's a pattern there. If you look at the questions asked of Abraham and then the questions asked of Christians and the answers that Paul provides about faith, um, I, this does not come from the Bible. Like You won't see it put anywhere in this order or anything. So making it clear, this isn't even, I can't even blame this on Dr. Ferguson. This is strictly Mr. Roberts. Um, God makes a promise. We trust in that promise. That's called faith. And then as David just said, that faith is credited to us. Now we're, as Wes said, now we are looked at as though we have not sinned. And God does that. That brings great joy. That brings great peace. Um, so that's the pattern. And again, I think that fundamental is a good place to start for folks who might be uh, trying to understand the existence of God and his relationship to them. So, time for you all to contribute. We, we um, have some questions here to think about from an, evangelic, uh, an, ev an evangelism uh, perspective. What promise of God might it be difficult to believe for someone who's not yet a Christian? I think we could start with the one Wes and David mentioned. I mean, the, the fundamental one, that, that there is a God that would that would promise to look at you as sinless, provided you respond in a particular way. But that promise itself, the most fundamental one, would be a challenge for someone to believe. There are other challenges. I, or sorry, challenges to uh, believe that for God's promise. What, what are some of those that you would see? What promise of God might it be difficult for a non-believer to accept as true. Perhaps that God, to be able to see that God cares and loves us when we, you know nothing. You, there's no basis, there's no foundation. So how do you relate to that and then the promises of God? Yeah. It's, it's something that's hard to comprehend for some. Thank you, Ron. So God cannot stand sin. So what does he do? He works out over the history of humankind a way to pay for sin himself. 
make us where we can be seen by him as pure. His solution is to pay the price and fix the problem himself if we respond appropriately. Thank you, Wes. John? Uh, I had a co-worker who was in the military and uh, had to make decisions and, and took lives and things like that. And that has been his biggest faith struggle to this day. He refuses to forgive himself. And because of that, he, he can't let God forgive him. He, he has to pay for the wrongs he's done. And so his life has been miserable because he cannot allow himself to be free of that. Thank you, John. Very challenging verse. When God forgives, he forgets. I cannot forget the things that I struggle with. And I can imagine a person who's been in the military and taken lives struggled with that because he that did that for his country. What does God think about him and his country? You know, how can we, if we can't forgive ourselves and forget, we cannot be, put ourselves in the place of God. Only God can forgive and forget. Thank you, Wes and John. So if, if you think, if maybe, maybe you have an answer and you don't want to share it or you're just mulling that over, what I put there in number two is, as you prepare to talk with other people about faith, it may help you with empathy, with understanding their position, if you ask yourself that question. What promise of God is difficult for me to believe? Right? I really appreciate Ron's answer because it suggests humility, right? That we would acknowledge the difficulty of what we're of what God is asking of a non-believer. Now, with that difficulty comes wonderful promises and fruits. So um, they clearly um, outweigh the, the challenge, but but the point is, um, it would be productive, I think, to have that answer yourself already worked out. What can you be honest about? How can your humility about that challenge um, help in a conversation and a relationship with someone else? Because Abraham may not have wavered, but uh, I'm not Abraham, you know, and it's okay to admit that. <coughs> All right, I drew a line in the page because I want. Go ahead, David. Uh, it kind of relates to several things that's been said. I, I studied several times with people that said I'm too bad to ever be forgiven. Mm. Uh, understanding that that sin is sin. <laughs> just no. I know. I know. Uh, it's some talk in some groups that there's. I'm not going to use the phrases, but there are big sins and little sins. But sin is sin. Mm -hmm. So. Their sin is no worse than my sin. And, and get that, getting that idea across, okay, we're all sinners on the side of God. No, no big sinners, little sinners. We're just all sinners. And now, as sinners, we need to respond to God's love and grace. Thank you for that reminder, David. That same passage, 421, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory that God meant for us to have before Him. The same man who wrote Romans 4 wrote that in Romans 6. Yes, ma'am. Reading, reading through numbers and all the animals that were killed and sacrifices over and over and over and over for those people's sin. And then we can think that 
Jesus' blood covers our sin where God can't see them. Once we are baptized and into Christ, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. That that example to me was the biggest one I ever heard, you know, because it made me feel more secure in my faith. Thank you for sharing that about your own experience, Mella. All right, part two of our lesson today, or not part two, just we'll call it section two here, um, is Dr. Ferguson provides this analysis of faith. And he says faith, as described in the Bible, has three, what we're going to call, elements. And he says those are the ascent of the intellect. We might say the agreement of the mind. He says the second is the trust of the emotions. And third is the obedience of the will. So intellect or mind, emotions and will. Agreement or assent, trust and obedience. And if you say, David, that sounds like I don't hear those words in the Bible. You know, I don't see that as a scriptural principle. I would offer to you Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Um, we don't have time to go through that today. But um, you can see those elements uh, in, in Abraham's life. The essential element would be the second one. Um, we've already said faith is trust in the promise of God. But then we ask, what, is what does trust require? Well, trust requires first... The acceptance of something is true. And then if you really trust, you have to demonstrate it in obedience. There, have to be, there has to be a result of that trust. So let's turn to page four to look at element one, which is we're going to call assent, which you might use the word agreement or consent. All right. So um, faith involves the acceptance of, of a truth, um, or in other words, something you agree with. There has to be a statement, a belief, and you have to agree with it. You might have heard the phrase, of course, faith comes by hearing. And what you hear is the reference to truth, right? That's the ascent. This, the scripture here would be 11, Hebrews 11.6. 11, um, it illustrates that the only way to know God's will is to believe what he says. The phrase there, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That is a literal statement. Right? Like You have to believe that God at his word so, moving to that second grouping of statements here, uh, I note that statements about God require a decision. A decision must be made since the evidence for a statement like there's not a God, or sorry, there is a God, isn't immediately uh, apparent to your senses. So, if you want to know what I mean here, uh, Dr. Ferguson calls those kinds of statements, statements about God, statements that require a decision, he calls those ultimate concerns, right? Final concerns the most important concerns of our lives. And he contrasts those with insignificant statements. So let's take this fact here. Let's take this statement. There is a city named Godibo. Now, not being a native Oklahoman, I thought maybe there's a decision about that too. Is, is that true really? Did somebody make that up? Somebody trying to get one over on me? Um, no, there's, there's an actual city. How about this one? Two plus two equals four. If you don't believe either of those statements, it's inconvenience, it may be a problem, but um, it, it is not an ultimate concern, right? It doesn't, that's not an eternal question. Whereas statements about God are, those require a decision. You have to decide, do I believe that to be true? Do I not believe that to be true based on evidence, based on faith? And so the key is, that, so we're going to pause there. That's the first element of faith. Like somebody has to believe um, that the thing said is true about God in this case. 
the, key, the, the difference for us as we move forward, though, is that intellectual assent is different from saving faith. And I've talked to folks that said, yeah, you know what, I, I believe Jesus probably existed. I, I believe he existed. And I, I believe that he, he, he probably was even the Son of God. I, you know, they just say it just doesn't make a difference to me, right? Um, so th that's the difference here we're talking about. So you make a list of all those things you agree with, those statements of fact that you agree with. Some of those you have to actually trust, right? You have to take into your being. You have to take into your emotions. So let's move to element two. That is trust. Faith involves not only mental agreement, but also trust. And trust, and, and thus faith, require surrender, right? You have to give up your own autonomy and commitment. You have to be faithful, right? Um, if you just think about the meaning of the word trust, um, I won't belabor that. This is, a, this is a, an advanced group here. Trust means confidence. It means taking someone at his or her word. Um, trust also implies that, that we can rely on the trustworthiness of another, that that person will keep their promises, and, this is interesting, will only make requests out of necessity and honesty. That means they won't ask you to do something that doesn't have to be done. They won't ask you to do something just for their pleasure, right? It will have a reason. It will have a goodness to it. It will be an honest request, right? We can trust people who do that. And then Dr. Ferguson references this scholar Karl Barth. And um, we won't spend a ton of time here, but I thought I would include this because it may resonate with some of you. Karl Barth explained faith as trust in this way. Faith is holding, in spite of all that contradicts it, once for all, exclusively and entirely, to God's promise and guidance. Um, that's not the Romans 4 definition. That is one man's definition. But then you can see in those three square bullet points where I break down what, what, what elements of that, that phrase might mean. Exclusively and entirely, meaning trusting God is a complete commitment. In spite of all that contradicts, trust leads to um, what Dr. Ferguson says is a higher reality that is truer and more trustworthy than human reason and human experience. Yeah, I'll be honest with you all. We're talking about some one thing being more true than another. I, it feels slippery to me. I don't, I don't really understand that, but maybe some of y'all I thought it would resonate with, so I included it. And then finally, once for all, the kind of trust we are discussing is an ultimate choice. The faith that comes from this trust describes a final relationship, meaning that once you trust God, there's no replacement for that. That's what once for all means. That trust is the final trust. There is no other trust needed. So again, so far, we're describing three elements of, of faith. The first is mental assent, right? You agree with it in your mind. The second would be emotional confidence. You trust it in your heart. And we'll go to the third element of trust. I'm sorry, of faith. And that's on page five. And that would be obedience. Obedience. Faith and obedience are tied together. We're going to spend some time here with that. Faith involves obedience and thus leads to a natural question. Okay? Whom does one obey? Right? That is, you have to answer that question if faith and obedience go together. Um, and of course, your answer to that question determines in whom you have faith. Alright, the next four bullet points. Um, again, I spent a whole quarter teaching a class on the book of Romans. Again, if you remember that, I look forward to talking with you about it in heaven. Okay? Um, but thank you if you do. 
The reason is, the book of Romans especially spends a lot of time establishing the fact that faith and obedience are the same in the Bible. That they are equivalent. Um, if you want a mental um, flagpole to hang this idea on, I just want you to remember Romans 1 and Romans 16. They both have the phrase, obedience of faith. So, if you're talking to someone that's wrestling with the, this element of faith, if you yourself are struggling with the obedience part of faith, what does it mean to have obeyed God? What does it mean to have faith in Him at the same time? Your flagpoles are Romans 1, Romans 16, the beginning and end of Romans. And then the way my father-in-law always said, he, he didn't say flagpole, he said a clothesline dryer, you know, that outdoor clothesline. And he said, imagine there's one T-post on this end, and one T-post on this end, and there's a line connecting them. The whole book of Romans hangs on that line. Faith, I'm sorry, the phrase obedience of faith is key. So if you're talking to folks, if you're thinking about the phrase obedience of faith, Romans is your place. Romans 1, Romans 16. Um, the Hebrew word for faith, uh, I'm not going to pr pr pronounce it, but I'll put it there in parentheses, included trust and obedience. They, they go together. Um, if you want some other ways to articulate this, you can say it this way. There is no faith that is not obedient. If it's not obedient, it's not faith. And then, I like to quote this all the time. Heather and I heard it in a sermon um, one time at the Port Isabel Church of Christ from their preacher, Tom Crum. I like to give him credit. He said it this way. This is really stuck with us. Obedience is the acid test of faith. Now, you say, what's an acid test, David? Well, I've got a good one for you. This is why Brother Crumb used this illustration. Um, in the past, when folks mined for gold, it was difficult to determine sometimes whether it was fool's gold or real gold. And the way you do that is you perform an acid test. And met gold responds differently to acid than other metals. And so the response of the acid would tell you whether it was real gold or not. What a beautiful illustration. Obedience tells you whether a person's faith is real faith or fake faith. Okay, insubstantial. So I love that phrase. Obedience is the acid test of faith. Thank you to Brother Crow for that. All right, and then briefly two points here about the um, conditional nature of, of God's promises, God's gifts. Um, because they involve obedience. Some of God's gifts are unconditional, such as the one listed in Matthew 5. Or the, sorry, the, the, uh, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I don't think this comment is like about physical science, but the point is the sunrise, the rain, they are not conditional. Like you don't have to do anything to receive that gift. Jesus is clear. However, some of God's gifts are conditional. They do require an obedience. They're still come from God. The person still didn't do um, the healing or, or as we're going to see with uh, the walls of Jericho, the destruction. They came from God, but the person still had to do something. So Naaman was commanded by Elisha to wash in the Jordan River seven times. When did he get healed? After the washing. All right. The fall of the walls of Jericho. Hebrews 11.30 even says that happened by faith. But they only fell after what? Seven times. I wish I had the passage. I wish I, I could. we had time for me to show you how Dr. Ferguson talks about that. He talks about how 
Uh, Joshua, right, does the walking. Um, he talks about how Joshua, he says Joshua was not an uh, ancient physicist who calculated sound waves. Anyway, um, he, Dr. Ferguson is rarely sarcastic, but he was that time. Um, but the point being, obedience and faith go together. Some of God's promises are conditional. God still is doing all the work, but they are conditional upon the human response. So, again, three elements of faith. Um, assent, trust, and obedience. We might say the mind, the heart, and the feet, or the hands, right? You have to put that faith into practice. So we have about four and a half minutes here. I've got some questions in light of um, these things I've shared for evangelism as we think about how to talk to our friends and neighbors. The first one is speculation. Now, again, I told you, uh, Paul makes clear, Abraham didn't waver. But I think it's okay to ask. We can just speculate. I'm being honest here. This is not a biblical answer. Um, Which of the three elements of faith may have presented the most difficulty for Abraham? You think about what he was called to do. Go to a new city, leave behind family. Um, If you want to look at his son. Yes, go ahead. That doesn't really answer your question, but it didn't waver regarding his faith that God was going to do it. He did waver as to how God was going to do it. I don't know what category that comes in. (laughs) Right, maybe my my categories here are limited. So that's a great point, David. I mean, yeah, he he wondered how. First time that he was promised that, Sometime after that, he went down and claimed that his wife was his sister because he was afraid of being killed in Egypt twice, sometime during that period. Uh, being <coughs> trusting that God will do what he says does not make us sinless. What God says is he can take care of our sins, but it does not make us sinless. We will still sin as Abraham still sinned. And yet his complete trust finally demonstrated in the incident with Isaac was that he completely trusted God to make him a great nation through Isaac and his other sons. And through that complete trust, he, he was credited with righteousness as though he had not done the other sin. Thank you, Wes. Yeah, l- lest, I be, lest I portray uh, Adam, uh, Abraham as perfect, certainly, certainly he did sin. And um, especially in how God would fulfill his promise. Still, I think that's helpful, again, as we think about humility and acknowledging to uh, people who are thinking about their own faith that um, even someone like, like Abraham um, struggled. Same thing for question two that I ask. Again, to aid, aid us with empathy and humility, it might be helpful to ask yourself this question. As you think about ascent trust and obedience, which element of faith was most difficult for me before I became a Christian, or as I continue to follow Christ. Um, I've known, uh, especially in college, a time of great study, I knew so many folks that wrestled with number one. Um, They just, they were struggling with the evidences of faith, Um, took a lot of apologetics classes, it was just difficult, right? Um, At other times of our life, it may be a trust issue, right? The way our own relationships with other people impact our relationship with God, right? Um, that certainly is an impact. And then I think we can all acknowledge sometimes it's difficult to put into practice what God has asked us to do. Um, so it would be helpful, I think, for you to, to ask those questions of yourself. Three and four um, speak specifically to conversations you might have. Um, 
Number three, I ask, faith involves our mind, our emotions, and our actions. How does this fact impact the way you might evangelize someone as they wrestle with faith? Thoughts there? With many of them, it's actions, their lives. They'll say, well, as soon as I can live a Christian life, I'll become a Christian. And I tell them, you can't live a Christian life without Christ. So anyway, that, that's what many of them struggle with. David gave a great response to folks who might say, as soon as I can live a Christian life, then, then I'll do it. And David said, you can't live a Christian life without Christ. And that's the place to start. And then four, I, I drill down to a specific question about how you might respond differently to someone struggling with the intellect versus the trust of faith. And to be clear, if you never use these words when you talk about faith, that's okay. I, I just want to give you a framework to think about um, as you discuss faith with people. All right, we'll continue with the human response next week. Thank you all. Appreciate the class.